0: hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 1, 27 through 28, 2, 18 and 22, and chapter 3, 15 through 16. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, "I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thanks be to God that he has given us his word in order for us and to understand what he has for us in terms of the design, designs for what it means to be a man, we design what it means to be a woman. So let me pray and ask God to help us as we consider what God has for us in terms of femininity and biblical femininity, femininity, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the time to be in your word. Thank you for your word. We didn't think, Father, we would be in a day in which it is a challenge to actually understand how to define what a woman is. And so you knew that. Um, You knew our propensity in our sinful nature to want to run away from what is true and good and right, to want to become independent of you, somehow thinking that that would bring us freedom. And uh, Father, rather, what we've discovered has brought a lot of chaos. So Father, that's true of our lives, but you are a gracious God, and you are one who wants to bring us back into an understanding of, of what you have for us, a good understanding of what you have for us, to an understanding of what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. And so we pray that you would do that for us this day again, that we would marvel at who you are, how gracious and kind you are to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, Pastor Justin preached on masculinity. And in that message, not surprisingly, he made a reference to femininity. And by the way, uh, you won't hear that word, to more often, because Justin and I have both agreed that's a very hard word to say. There's an extra (laughs) in in there that's kind of a challenge. But uh, he, uh, he made a reference to femininity by asking the question in the context of marriage, is a wife a burden to her husband? To which he answered, yes, like wings are to a bird. Now, I would like to begin this morning working off that analogy and expand it out and to recognize that women are like wings to a bird. They are the glory of, of man, the glory of men. And I take that from 1 Corinthians eleven eight, 8, which says, The woman is the glory of man. Now, when I say bird you have a particular image in your mind of what a bird is. Now, if I would say a majestic bird, it's possible that you have another image in your mind of what that looks like. But it's probably not an ostrich (laughs) or an emu. A flightless bird. No, when I used that word bird, or when I then said a majestic bird, now you, you were thinking of something different. You were thinking of a beautiful bird with, with wings. Or I would say a particular bird, a majestic bird, you would be thinking of potentially an eagle. See, flightless birds, they look silly. Flightless birds are limited by their design They have a territory that is severely limited by their ability only to walk. But birds that have wings, they're just glorious. Wings of a bird are designed so that they can soar and influence massive areas of territory. So women are the glory of men. God has designed men with limits, and thus without women we are limited in our effectiveness. But men and women working in complement of one another, working according to their design, they can soar. We can soar. So today we're going to focus on the glory of the woman, and we're going to look at that glory of God-given femininity. See, for the past few months, as we've been studying uh, our origins, we've been looking at, of course, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1, chapter 1, gave kind of the high-altitude picture of that pinnacle moment on day 6 of the creation of man and woman. The narrator stated in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, these words, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right there, we we know that within this glorious thing called the human being, we know that there is a diversity within the human being, that God created a male and God created a female, that there is a God created diversity, but also at the same time, an equality, See, it says there that they both together share the image of God. They're made in the image of God. The glory of being a human being is that we are made to reflect the glory of God. That's what it means to be human. You have value and worth. You have a purpose, and that is that you are to image forth. You're to show the world what God is like. That glory is not just seen in the man. That glory is not just seen in the woman. No, the glory of humanity is made in the image of God as seen in the complementary designs of the man and the woman. So going back to the sixth day at that 10,000-foot level that we have of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 28, the man and the woman are given the same blessing, and that blessing comes in the form of a mandate. And so here's the blessing Verse 28, chapter 1 of Genesis, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the working out of both biblical masculinity and femininity should result in a fruitfulness we see there, a multiplication, a feeling, and a Subduing. Now, why is it necessary for this creation mandate? Why was it necessary that within the the creation of this garden that there was a need for a mandate for them to be doing these things, being fruitful and, and multiplying? Well, that's because outside of the garden there was a wild, untamed, empty world with all kinds of resources yet to be discovered. The God intended for us to come out and to begin to press out his kingdom into this untamed, wild, crazy world that was outside the garden in such a way that we'd find the resources and use those resources in such a way that then would bring glory to God in the way that we had used them, used them for technology and other things. So the first and most obvious thing as we look at creation is that God made women to do work. In the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, before there was death, before there were tears, there was work. Again, reflecting back on our study in our origins, work was part of the very good that was declared At the end of the sixth day, last verse, chapter 1, verse 31, oh, work is very good. Given both to the man and to the woman, they were to work. And this is important to note for coming out of World War II and the advancement of technology and innovation. And economic growth. Women in America could do things much more efficient and effective. I reflect back on my own grandmother, my own grandmother used to. She always had a garden, and in that garden she always canned. And I could never understand it as her grandson. I'd come to her home and she had a beautiful home in the suburbs. I couldn't understand why she would do this. I mean, Grandma, you can just go right down to the grocery store and find cans, all you want. You see, my grandmother, she grew up during World War I. And during World War I, she grew up in the country. She was from the Ozarks. Uh, She was a hillbilly. (laughs) And her dependence, their dependence upon the work that she did within her home, the ability for her to actually produce a garden that would actually have food that they would then can in the fall. And then in the fall, they would put it into... uh, some kind of a cellar, a root cellar. That was absolutely important for the survival of their family over the winters. How well she worked in the home at that point was going to, was going to really be an effect on how they were going to survive a winter. I couldn't understand, well, grandma, why are you doing this? Well, you know, she, she was quite a, a businesswoman. She and her husband, um, I think sometimes he reluctantly had to do this, uh, she would keep on buying homes, she would buy uh, rentals, and then buying those rentals, they would flip them in a day, they didn't call it flipping. <laughs> She'd actually live in them for a period of time, for a couple of years, and then she would uh, wait till the market went up, and over and over and over she did this, so that by the time I knew my grandmother and grandfather, uh, they, they were doing quite well, and yet she continued to can. We come into the, the 50s, and we see our economy going crazy. We see technology doing its thing. We see the efficiency and effectiveness of what it means to live within this world. And so all of a sudden, uh, women have a lot more time to do. So it wasn't surprising that as we get into the early 60s, feminism was struggling, was wrestling with the question, what do we do with all of this time? And, and women were not feeling like they had any purpose anymore because they had so much free time. And so, what do they say? Women, you should go back to work. You should work. And yeah, that's the right answer work, because she was created to work. But perhaps the solution wasn't the right one. And that is to simply work in a separation from one's household, a separation from one's husband, a separation from one's children simply, just simply to work. And so we'll see in a minute here what God has uh, for women in terms of work. And I want you to notice something else. When men, men and women work in complement of one another, there's something else that we see within that mandate, and that is that there's a multiplication effect that, that happens So it's not just simply 10 plus 10 equals 20. When men and women, when they work together, they complement one another in such a way that it's really 10 times 10, 100 in their work. So we have our 10,000 foot uh, level, and then we move to chapter two, and we remember God has given us a close-up look at day six, particularly the creation of human beings. And it is there, there's a surprising statement, a kind of a stop in your tracks moment, uh, as those who are hearing it, or if you were reading it, if, if you, would, you would stop and go, wait, what what, what did they just hear? See, we heard this. We heard, it was good, 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 it was very good. It is not good. Which should put us back on our heels. What? What's not good? Chapter 2, verse 18. Birds without wings is not good. <laughs> At least that's the analogy we're using. The man without the woman. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now, it's important to notice the context when the statement was given. He he has just put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Given the blessing to press the edges of the garden out into this uh, wild, tameless, empty world to, in the name of the Heavenly Father, subdue it. And it was clear the job was too big for Adam to do this alone. He was insufficient There was a design limit to the man. And so for this reason, he needed help. Men, we need help. To which the women say, amen. Adam needed help. Now, what happens with men is when we have a large task to do, what we tend to do is we tend to think, oh, I know, I'll just get some more men. But God said, oh, no. No, this task is way too big for that. You need someone like you, but not like you. Verse 21 of chapter 2, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. She comes from the man, thus equal to him, and yet she is made from a different substance. The man is made of dirt to work the dirt. The female is made from his side, near his heart. Much better for relational nurturing work. But I want you to notice one other thing, and that's this, that she was attractive to the man. And I think I'm on safe ground when I say that by Adam's response. So we look at verse 23 now, Genesis 2, 23. Then the man said, as he awakens from this, this sleep that he has been in, and God brings her to him as a gift. This is what she, he, the man says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the poetic description of the thrill, of the attractiveness that she has to Adam. She was beautiful to him. Well, this aspect is going to be important in a minute. We'll see. So when God created the first and perfect woman, he made a worker meant to stand by Adam's side as the two of them together take dominion of the earth. Now, how are they going to do this? Well, the mandate says they're going to be fruitful and thus fulfill or thus fill the earth with image bearers of God. In the way God designed Adam, he could have tried all his life long and not produced a single human being. So clearly, again, he needs help. And the woman was the solution to this problem. Women are designed to have babies. Did you know that? I I, I have to say that today women are designed to have babies. Everything about a woman is meant for mothering, from being sexually attractive to men in the first place, to being able to conceive, to having the environments within her for which God then can weave and wind uh, together another human being, to the feeding of the baby with her own body, to the simply the mothering instincts hardwired within, within her. As a matter of fact, all women... Live with the reality of a monthly cycle to remind her that she is not a minor, that this is not, that this is not, that this is not a minor part of her design. It is her design. Now I realize that there are women here who are single and want to be married. And there are women here who are married and have been unable to conceive. As we'll see in a minute, the fall has made a mess of things. It is to you, and then to all women, to note then Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. See, the man called his wife's name Eve, Because she was the mother of all living. Literally all living can be translated life giver. She was a life giver. She is a life giver. Women are created to be life givers. But I want you to notice here that when Adam gives the woman this name Eve, she actually hasn't given birth to anybody yet. He's identified her as a life giver without ever birthing children. And that implication is huge because giving birth is an aspect of a life giver, but it is so much more. Every woman is called to be a life giver in every relationship and ministry God entrusts to them. So words of encouragement give life to the discouraged. Ministries of compassion infuse life into the weary and worn Ministries of availability and hospitality, not just to the family, but friends and strangers model the covenant way of life. Relationships to unsaved neighbors gives glimpses of life. When women live the life of chesed, loving kindness, they impart life in a myriad of ways. So it's important to note that Eve was not given to Adam simply by, because by himself he couldn't have babies. She was given to Adam to help with the enormous task of taming the planet, yes, by giving birth to other image bearers, but more than that, by the nurturing souls made for eternity, whether it be their own or whether it be their neighbor. There's more, There's no more important job, no more important job than women using their nurturing relational skills to be life givers They are created to be life givers. So what happened? What happened with the fall? Well, Last week, clearly, and in previous messages around Genesis 3, we have established that the man was responsible for the fall. That while being in this moment of temptation, rather than stepping in, rather than leading, protecting and providing for his woman, he idly watched the temptation unfold. So chapter 3, verse 1, let's get in the middle-ish of it, or the end of it. Satan said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she adds some words to God's word. Neither shall you touch it. He didn't say that. Lest you die. Now here's what I want you to notice. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, oh, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In this way, you will know what is good and what is evil. In other words, you don't need God to tell you what is good and what is evil. You will be independent of God. And when you become independent of God, you will be free. You will be free to define what is good and what is evil Satan causes her to question god's goodness and so in questioning his goodness She is tempted to think that perhaps she knows better what is good and not good for her And so bottom line satan deceived her into thinking that freedom comes with independence If she could just be independent from authority She would be free as one feminist reflected on her life before Christ, she said, I didn't want anyone else calling the shots in my life, especially if that someone was a man. I thought I could be free only if I was the one making the decisions for my life. I wanted choices and options. If I chose marriage and children, fine. But I didn't want another person choosing for me. Lack of independence was akin to being a trapped, and I knew I didn't want that for the rest of my life. She goes on. What I failed to understand was that true freedom cannot be found in independence from authority at all. True freedom is found in understanding our creator. Knowing that God has a good design when he created us male and female. So in being deceived into believing that independence from God's authority would give her freedom, she was cursed. And so we had read for us Genesis chapter three, verse 16, which God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing while continuing within the blessing of giving birth. Women still bear children, but there's great pain that's involved. And then secondly, he said, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Ask any Christian mother the pain they experience in raising children, hoping and praying that they will be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you this: that pain doesn't end when they leave your home. It continues on into their life. You will have pain in childbearing, bearing, bringing forth children. Your desire," he says, shall be contrary to your husband. That is, wives will want to be in control. They'll want to take the lead. But he shall rule over you, which is a reference to a bad rule of dictating men's bad rule of dictating over their wives rather than sacrificially serving them. Thus, in throwing off the seemingly shackles of God's authority and absolute truth, it ought not to surprise us that we are now having difficulty in our day and age to know how to answer the question, "What does it mean to be a woman?" or just simply saying, "What is a woman?" See, it's no wonder we're anxious people. Five years ago, you really didn't have to think about the answer to that question, what is a woman? But today, you do. And no wonder our children are anxious little beings. We can't give them the simplest of answers to their questions. Daddy, what is a woman? We can't even answer that anymore for them. I really don't know. And we're anxious as a result. See, in our throwing off of God as as, and being independent of Him, all it has caused is caused chaos for us. Is called anxiety for. See, uh, Satan brings chaos. Nothing is new under the sun. However, when Adam and Eve rejected God and His created order, what do we do? We find them anxiously hiding. How does God respond to anxious people who have turned their back on Him? (laughs) He gives them hope. Satan brings chaos, and God brings Christ. God promises them a Redeemer. And particularly Eve was to have, as all women since, continue to have a critical role in redemption. (laughs) This is the God we serve. This is the God we serve that as we, we put our fists in his face and says, I want to be independent of you, he says, let me give you hope. So turning in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where we're going to read uh, down through uh, verse 15. So 1 Timothy 2, uh, beginning at verse 9. Women should adorn themselves in respectable baby apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So what I want to do is I want to walk backwards through this passage. And it's within this passage that we find how women are critical to redemption. So let's start with the troubling verse, verse 15. She will be saved through childbearing. So how is the woman going to be saved through giving birth to children? Well, to answer that question, we have to ask, what is she being saved from So, verse fourteen gives us the answer to that question. So, look there at verse fourteen. She was deceived by Satan. That is, we've already seen that she believed the lie of Satan that God was was holding back from her and was deceived into believing that she was independent from authority would bring from God's authority would bring freedom. That stepping outside of God's creative order that somehow that would bring her freedom. But what she discovers, it didn't. Rather, she simply became a, look there, transgressor of all that is good. Feminism, within the last 200 years since the Enlightenment, has two common themes. One theme is to step outside of the God-given authority to reject submission to God and, and if married, to one's husband. And then secondly, to be free from the shackles of the biological realities of bearing children. So the feminist movement for the entirety of the 20th century is entering into, and entering into this century is centered around a desire to be sexually free without uh, the attendant results. Thus, there is a demand for birth control and abortion as a simple basic right of all uh, of all women. But contrary to having children as shackles to the woman, on the woman, Paul here is saying that women have a critical role in being saved from her transgressor role by giving birth first. First to the Savior. So what, he's, she's, what God wants to do is he wants to free the woman who was deceived. He wants to free her from this... Um, from being the one who was deceived. And so he says, okay, you want to be free from that? I'm going to have you as a critical individual to bring the Savior. See, remember what did he say at that pivotal moment uh, when it was clear that Adam and Eve had sinned? He didn't condemn them, but rather... He cursed Satan and said that through this woman right over here, this woman, we, we Eve, you deceived, there will come from her an offspring who will give you a fatal blow. Thus, the Old Testament is an anticipation of this dragon slayer. Uh, the Old Testament is a movement. It says, who is it going to be? So Eve said, it could, it could be one of my offspring, the Old Testament is this story of anticipating where is the dragon slayer going to come who's going to deal with this, this serpent? And so it continues to narrow it down into uh, families, into the chosen people of God so that every woman who was a part of the chosen people of God were wondering, is it going to be me? Is it going to be me? Am I going to be the one who's going to give birth to the dragon slayer? All the way down to Mary, the mother of Jesus The Christ Through a woman The promised Savior Came This is how she is saved From being the one who was deceived But what about women on this side of the cross How are they saved from the Shame of Eve's transgression Well, there are two ways. One, they give birth to children, boys and girls who become dragon slayers in our world to push back the kingdom of darkness through their nurturing Christ-like offspring. But but what about women who are unable to have children or single women? How do they join the married, child-bearing women? Well, I think we see this in verses 11 through 14. So see, Paul's admission for her, look back at 11 through 14, Paul's admission is for her to learn quietly or to to not teach or to exercise authority over a man, which is within the context of the church. And we know that this is within the context of the church because chapter three, Paul states the very purpose of why he is writing this letter to Timothy. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So God has ordained within the government of the church, a particular order. Pastor elders are to be men. And then Paul points out that when we get out of order, bad things happen like what happened within the sphere of the family. God has an order for the family. Verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. He was formed to lead, providing not only physical and emotional leadership, but also spiritual leadership. When the first family stepped outside of this order, look at verse 14, what happened? Bad things happened. But I want you to notice what isn't said here. Women are not to teach or exercise authority within the church because somehow they are incapable of it to understand, to understand or handle profound theological truths, or not capable of being compelling teachers. It's not why he said they are not to be teaching. Capability has nothing to do with it. Matter of fact, look again at verse 11, 11. let's. A woman learned. Why is that? Why are women who are prohibited to preach theology, why are they encouraged to know theology? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to verses 9 and 10. Underlying the admonition of these verses, 9 and 10, are two qualities. Beauty and incarnation. Beauty and incarnation. Think about it. When men bring about change, they usually do it by an expression of a proposition. Men decide how something is going to be. They lay it out clearly, and then there is an expectation that people will conform to the proposition. It's very linear, and it's very direct. And this is a vital and necessary role of a man. But women have another way of affecting change, and that's by making it beautiful. See, it's amazing what I can do. I can make great Pharisees. I can make great Pharisees because I can teach them what is true and I can even teach them what is good. That is, I can teach them how they ought to behave. But you know the struggle I have as a man? I have a struggle to share share with them how these things are beautiful. And so I can make a great Pharisee who says, okay, I know what the truth is, and I know what to do, and so I'll act this way. But that's not what God is calling us. When God calls us to love him, he calls us to love him in truth, good, and beauty. In other words, that we would say, this is really, really good. So the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And men go, okay. I understand what he's saying. <laughs> but women read that and go, "Oh yeah, I get that." It's here where women are uniquely designed. Women are to take the attract, uh, take the abstract, sorry, the abstract, the cerebral, the intellectual, and they are to make it beautiful. They are to make it attractive. It's interesting being in missional community and going through stories, just kind of watching the dynamic go on there. You're listening to the story. You get to the end of it and you're starting to ask good questions and try to pull out maybe some things that might be going on, some heart issues where they're not believing the gospel, whoever is giving that story. And the men, you know, boy, we get right in there and we give great propositional thoughts. And we are just, okay, that was good, you know, and we think, okay, you got it. And, you know, that individual is kind of going, ah, and then a woman comes in. She steps in. And what does she do? She begins to kind of tell a story. And she begins to kind of work it out relationally, And, and she begins to be nurturing. And all the guys are going, wow, because the person is getting it. Because they might have already understood what I'm saying to them. They might have understood how they ought to behave. But where the real struggle is, is how do I love this? How is this attractive? How is this beautiful that I would give up this in order to have this? And women can make it happen. You are to make it beautiful. I don't know how many bachelor pads I've gone to. You know, and it's more than satisfying to have like a, you know, a piece of a door and on some seahorses ho- sea there, or what do you call those? Not seahorses, when I saw horses, you yeah. <laughs> know. A stool. That's good. My son, single, he, uh, he makes one meal for the week. It's on Sunday, and just makes a whole bunch of it, and every day he just eats the same thing all week. It works. It's propositionally good. It's very effective and efficient. That's his whole thing. He needs a woman. (laughs) My prayer request from you, for you. (laughs) But there's a second aspect here, and that is not only beautiful, but women are to be incarnational. See, look again at the end of verse 10. Looking again at the end of verse 10. With good works. Women are to take the truths of our faith and make them attractive by incarnating them, by making them literally look good, taste good, sound good, and feel good. Now, how does she do this? Well, now we need to turn our Bibles to uh, Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 3. Titus 2, verse 3, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, no no, no slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, what I would just want you to notice here is the location. The location is working at home. Now, Paul is making the assumption that most women, particularly in the society in which he lived, that the women were married. But if the woman wasn't married, she was most likely living within the home of her parents or some relative. But a second thing we need to note here is that most businesses were were within a home and attached to the home in Paul's day. Thus, women were an integral part of how the family made a living. But again, note the importance of the home. Ultimately, God is not concerned about the location of where the woman woman works, but about where her relationship is to the home. See, women are instructed here in this passage to be the one who is running the home. So in general, women are to take care of and manage the household. So does this mean that women ought not to work outside of the home? No. No. This doesn't mean women should work outside of the home. See, if we took the time to work through Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman, we find her buying, selling, trading. She is an impressive, hardworking, high-achieving woman. But we also find something telling in Proverbs 31. Her children rise up, and call her blessed. And the heart of her husband safely trusts in her. Let me, let me just, I think I have it marked here. Just this one. Oh, where is it? Uh, there we are. Yeah. Proverbs 31. It says, her children rise up. This is verse boy, 28. Small, small words. Her children rise up and call her blessed her husband also, and he praises her saying this, verse 29, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. See, see, the reason why they are doing that is because while she may be working outside of the home, she is working for the home. Their heart is turned towards the home in order for the home to be a better place. And so her children know where they can tr- who they can trust. The husband knows in whom she can pr- uh, he can praise. Her heart is, has a priority, and it's a priority is her home. See, you think about feminism. Frequently, what they do is they frame women who give up their careers to stay at home to care for their families. They frame it up as betrayal, as a betrayal of being a woman. The goal of feminism has been to make women feel a deep loyalty to their tribe, and that tribe is womankind. In other words, feminism wants women to redraw the line of what women's clans are, and it is one in which the line splits each and every family in half, males and females. And God says, oh, no, that will not make you happy. No, I've made the woman for the home. She can do what the men cannot. So Paul reorients women toward where their focus should be and where it ought to stay, and it is in our homes. So what does this tangibly look like? Well, what does beauty and being incarnational look like? Well, here's an obvious example. Take Christmas. Christmas is, of course, when God did ultimately what women can only do in a shadow, and that is, it is the ultimate incarnation. God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. A moment so staggering that angels and foreign rulers and even a star joined in the celebration. So, women take the difficult Theological truth, the incarnation, and the attempt to show the beauty of that truth. See, men can talk about it. Church fathers can write important treaties about it. Pastors can preach about it. Theologians can parse and define it. But women are the ones who make it taste and see and smell and feel beautiful. With cookies. (laughs) And wrapping paper and lights and tablecloths. And shopping trips at the last moment for that last little gift, where even a four year old really gets it, where it sends deep roots down into his or her soul and anchors his or her love and loyalties on into their 90s. That's powerful. See, in the end, this has gospel implications. And now why do I say that? Well, look at the end of verse 5, Titus 2. That the word of God may not be reviled. And central to the word is the gospel. Last week we learned that true masculinity is found perfectly in Jesus. And since that is true... Femininity can be seen in his bride, the church. Now you might say that the church is not perfect and thus is not a perfect picture of true femininity, and and in one regard you're right. In her current visible state, awaiting the return of the groom, she is still being sanctified. However, from an eternal perspective, a perspective where time is not relevant to the God who was and is and will be, he sees her as she truly is. Perfect in Christ. And we get a glimpse of this glory, what her perfect state will look like through the statements and commands of God's word. And I think it is here where we see her glorious role. See, the man, he came. And the man had a burden. The man had a burden for his bride, the church. And so the man lived a perfect life, lived the life that you and I should have lived, lived according to what God had commanded, so that when the man went to the cross, he suffered and he died what should have been our death. He took what Adam and Eve should have taken. The man shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. The man died. The man sacrificed because he had a burden. For the bride, for the woman. Now consider this the man was raised, and he did a crazy thing. The man ascended into heaven. But before he did that, he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then he did this crazy thing. He ascended into heaven. This command, and we know it as the great commission is really a restatement of the cultural mandate given to humanity and creation. God ordained the church to do what the man Jesus could not do. Is that blasphemous? It's not. The man, he ascended, the man ascended so that his mandate, his commission could not soar without the woman, the church. Isn't that interesting? He could have stayed, he didn't, because he wants the woman, the bride, us, to work out the Great Commission. What did the man say? The man said, I need help. Jesus said that. I need help. And then he commissioned, he said, Woman, now submit. And don't you want to submit as the church? I want to submit. I want to submit to this groom and fulfill the commission. That he has given. So, women, as you think about this call to be the help, and as you think about this call to be uh, submitting, think about what the church is to be doing with the man. But it's interesting because then we have a spirit who comes along, and the spirit is called what? The helper. And what does the spirit do? The spirit takes what is true and good and the spirit then applies that to the heart so that the man or the woman, the child comes from a point of understanding what is true and good to a point of wanting to receive it as a good gift. And that's what we call it. We call it a gift. And good gifts are wrapped up beautifully. We're like, oh, I want it. And That's your role, women. That's your role. Make it beautiful. Like the spirit makes it beautiful. We can't do it. Us guys, we can't do it. We're really bad at this. I mean, I've given my wife a gift in a paper sack. (laughs) Seems good enough for me. It's a gift. Take it. She always wraps my gifts beautifully. Just the way she wants to do it. I love it. So, women, work. Work hard. Do what us men cannot do. Be life givers. Be fruitful in all you do. Make God's word attractive to us. Incarnate theological, theological truths, which means you're going to need to know them. And you're going to have to do the hard work of figuring out how do I make this taste good? How do I make this look good? How do I make this smell good? How do I make this sound good? Women, help us. We need help. Father, thank you. Good idea. Good idea. We acknowledge, Father, that your idea of male and female is a really good idea. Father, we pray for the women of our lives. We pray for us men, Father. Help us to be, help us to be praising our wives. Because Father, we don't do that. We, Father, you know us. We're whiners and complainers. And we fail to praise. Father, we pray for our women. Please help them. They, they're living in a tough world that wants to run from your truth. We pray, give them the courage to be women and the creativity and the wisdom to be women who not only know your truth, but can help us men see how beautiful it is, how attractive it is. Give them help to know how to incarnate your truth so that our children can see the good truths and want them in our homes. We thank you. Father, the night that your son was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he took a cup and said, this is a cup of the new covenant, a new way of looking at things, by the shedding of my blood. So Father, as we take this, may we enjoy, may we taste, may we even smell a little bit of what this smells like of your dying for us, your son dying for us, we pray. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.